We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And I know sometimes it takes a little bit to kind of focus, but I need you to focus from the very get-go. Because if you miss this, you'll miss essentially the sermon, but where we've been. There are two impossibilities in Christian life. One, we can't get to God on our own. Would you agree with that? Two, we can't live the Christian life on our own. Good news? Jesus solves both dilemma. Let me say that again. Two impossibilities in the Christian life. One, we can't get to God on our own. Two, we can't live the Christian life on our own. The good news, Jesus solves both dilemma. What we've been talking about can be encapsulated in this phrase we've been repeating over and over again. The Christian life is only possible when the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sends on his behalf, when he ascends to heaven, lives in us, lives through us, this Christian life for us. The Christian life is only possible when the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, lives through us, this Christian life for us. And we've been trying to come around this, not just intellectually, but experientially. And I wonder if you're there yet. I wonder if I'm there yet. I wonder if this little, you know, sort of phrase we've been saying of breathing in, I can't breathe out, but you can. Breathing in, I can't breathe out, you can't. That this is becoming the essential posture of our daily life. The Christian life is only possible when the Holy Spirit who lives in us lives through us, this Christian life for us. Where we've been for the last couple weeks in this larger series is Ephesians 5. Let's turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians 5. We've been focusing, narrowing in for the last three weeks on verses 18 to 21, which might be familiar to you. 18 to 51, so we're just going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in and get to verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Quick review. Be filled. Three things. It's a command. It's a command. It's an imperative. In Greek grammar, it's an imperative, meaning this isn't something you and I have a a choice on whether we want to engage in. God says you don't have a choice to not obey this in as much as any other commands in Scripture. It is an imperative. Secondly, it's plural. It's written to all people. So being filled with the Spirit is not for some of us that have been around for a while. We're sort of accustomed and familiar with the ministry of the Spirit. It's to all people, individually, collectively. And third, and this is important, It's in the present tense, meaning it's to be an ongoing thing. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we are to pursue on an ongoing basis. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that happens once and you're good to go for the rest of your life. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we are to pursue on an ongoing basis, on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We talked a little bit about the interpretive key that gives us a clue a couple weeks ago. Paul says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. The interpretive key reminds us this, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is literally saying, go to the Spirit and be filled for what you go to the bottle for. Go to the Spirit. And it's amazing, I preached this a couple of weeks ago and talked to folks who've struggled with alcohol addiction, other addictions. And they said, when I talked about why people get drunk, they said, I felt like, they said, I felt like you were talking directly to me. Remember what we talked about? Why do people get drunk? I'm not talking about, you know, you're 2021, you're in fraternity, you stupid, irresponsible, you just want to get drunk. Or I also don't have time to get into family history and so on and so forth. I'm talking about why do functionally people get drunk? Here's one. I've got lots of folks who say to me, I can't deal with my problems. I can't deal with problems in life. I've lost meaning in life. So here's why I'm going to cope with it, Peter. I'm just going to get drunk so I don't have to think about it. Do you know anyone like that? Are you like that? I get drunk so I don't have to deal with the issues. I don't have to deal with problems. Some people get drunk to get courage. 
I've heard literally people say to me, I got to tell him something really unpleasant, but I'm scared to death, so I'm going to. You get courage. Why? As we talked about, certain centers in your brain get knocked out, and you don't think as much about the ramifications. Third, people also train to get vulnerability. You ever meet someone who's really tightly wound, never shares anything? They have a couple. They can really open. Vulnerabilities. People deal with issues in life. People get courage to mask pain by getting drunk. By the way, as I said, there are lots of ways to get drunk. So in case you're sitting there on a highfalutin horse like, oh, drink, you know what you do? You know what I do? We overwork. Hello, anybody? Why are you so busy overwork? Because I'm just hardworking. Stop it. Why do you overwork? Because if I just get myself busy enough, I don't have to deal with my fears, with my insecurities, with my past. Some of us watch porn. My wife and I just talked last night. Kids are watching porn earlier and earlier these days, nine, ten years old. And Jenny and I are like, oh, we might have to have this conversation some point with our children. Some of you watch porn to deal with issues. Not just men, women too, by the way. It's a way of masking the pain of loneliness. I'm just going to watch porn. Okay, let's keep going. How about TV? How about... I mean, I could go on. Don't, what, what are you doing to mask pain? What are you doing to get drunk? But here's the issue, and I'm going to be quick about this. The issue is this. The issue is it just masks it. It just allows you to live in denial. But the problem is reality catches up to you sooner or later, doesn't it? Reality catches up to you. You can only mask it for so long. At some point, reality punches you in the face. The problem is, if you don't have courage to face the fears, you don't have courage to face your insecurities, you don't have courage to face the rejection or the past, you're going to turn to these things to mask it. By the way, I just forgot. Some of us do it to do what? Some of us do it because we're deeply afraid. Afraid of what's in here about us. Enough. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Does the Holy Spirit come and help you forget about your problems? Does the Holy Spirit come and kind of mask the pain for a little bit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And this is Paul's argument. The Holy Spirit comes, and instead of helping you live in denial of reality, it gives you a bigger picture of reality. And I get an amen. I gave this analogy a couple weeks ago. If your problems and your fears are a monster with fangs and claws coming at you, and all these things that we do to kind of help mask it, help not see the monster, what does Holy Spirit do? Holy Spirit comes and gives you a bigger sense of reality. What do I mean? Holy Spirit reminds you and me, allows us to see that there is something bigger than that monster, that there is a sovereign God of history who sits on the throne. The Holy Spirit comes and makes real, not just intellectually, real in our hearts that there's a God who is in control of history who says that all things work for our good. There is a God who has you in the palm of his hands. And check this out. Nothing that you do, nothing that other people do can ever take you out of the palm of his hands. The Holy Spirit comes and makes that truth real. Not help you forget your problems. Not help you mask it for a little bit. It helps you see a bigger sense of reality. I love what C.S. Lewis said. You know what he said? He said, Christianity isn't so that you can... Christianity, he said, you don't go to it to make your life comfortable and happy. He said, if I wanted my life to be comfortable and happy, a a bottle of port, whiskey, scotch would have done that. He says, Christianity not for those who are pursuing happiness and comfort. He says, if that's what you want, I don't recommend Christianity. 
Christianity doesn't give you a little buzz to forget about your problems for a little bit. Christianity gives you a bigger sense of reality so you could face your problems, you could face your demons, you could face those monsters and not live in denial of them, but triumph over them. Is that good news? That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit... Let me put it this way. How strong would you be if the truth that God in his wisdom knows what is best for you became real? Come on, I know why you're afraid. No, does God really know what's best for me? I know what's best for me, so I'm going to... What if the truth, God in his wisdom knows what is best for you became real? What about, what if God in his love desires what is best for you became real? What if the truth that God in his power, God in his sovereignty has the power to bring about good becomes real? Oh, come on now. Reason why you and I are scared? The reason why you and I turn to bottle, the reason why you turn to sex, is because the truth of God's wisdom, God's love, and God's power is real here, but not here. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, let's get the thing to be real. Let's get the thing to be real. That's what it means to be filled. You have a choice. You could try to deal with problems, issues by turning to things that will mask it, live in denial for a bit. By the way, you could do that with Christian activity too. Oh. Or. You can be filled. Then Paul goes on and he lists results and ramifications. Of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Christ. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Give me like two minutes to share something that, that I've been hammering away at, but just one last time. There's an interpretive key found in New Testament that is so key. Let me show you another part of the New Testament where Paul lists something, and it almost sounds identical to Ephesians 5. Check this out. Colossians, Colossians 3.16, where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. In verse 17, and whatever you do, and word or do you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is just like Paul, by the way. The same list, pay attention, the same list of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and results of it in Ephesians 5 is found in Colossians 3 when he says, be filled with the Word. Jamie, this is... When he says, be filled with the word Ephesians 5, he turns right around Colossians. He says, Colossians 3, be filled with the, what's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying? What we've been talking about for the last six weeks, being filled with the spirit and being filled with the word go hand in hand. Why is that so powerful? Because there's mysterious aspects of being filled with the spirit. Sometimes I don't even know. I can't figure out. But there's one thing that's really clear. Being filled with the Spirit is no secret. Paul says, go to the Word. Go to the Word. There's a big mystery about it. You want to know what it means to be filled, how to be filled? Go to the Word. Where the Word is not cherished, there will be no deep experiential knowledge of the gospel and the Spirit. And where the Spirit is not sought. There will be no deep experiential knowledge of the word. So my question for the last seven, eight weeks has been, is there a correlation to why we're not filled with the spirit and why we are not spending time in the word? It's all right here, y'all. It's all right here. It's all right he breathes it. He writes it. He makes it come alive. It's all right here. Listen, 
before we talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, I just got to, listen. Here, here's some things that happened when I've experienced filling of the Spirit. And don't judge me, okay? I've been filled with the Spirit, and sometimes I just wept uncontrollably because of joy. Anybody? Anybody? Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> I've also been filled with the Spirit, and I've literally shaken. My body shook. Now, some of you are saying, Sitting and looking, looking at me and going, I didn't know you were one of them charismatic Pentecostal freaks. I'm not. But people, but, but other times, I've been filled with the Spirit and I've spoken in tongues. Other times, I've been filled with the Spirit. As depending on what should I share this? I've been filled with the Spirit and I've prayed for people and they've fallen. Now, you're just sitting at me going, now I know you're totally judging me right now. Go, oh, he's one of those. It happened once for a summer for three months in 1998, and it never happened again. Being filled with the Spirit also caused me to be deeply convicted about my sins, and I've repented. Why do I say all those things? I think there are a number of ways that being filled with the Spirit manifests itself, but the interesting thing is Paul lays out for us these are the marks of being filled with the Spirit. So without denying all those other things, he says, these are the necessary marks of being filled with the Spirit. So if you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, check these out. Don't seek experiences or miracles. Problem with seeking miracles is one miracle is not enough. You're going to keep going back to it. So let's look at the marks of the Spirit because it's really hot in here. I'm going to try to be quick. Try to be quick. And we get out of here. Marks of the Spirit. One, relationships of mutual submission. Relationships of mutual submission. And need I remind you that this right here prefaces Paul's most profound teaching on marriage, employer-employee relationship, parent-child relationship. Every relationship, Paul says, the key to it is you need to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Here it is. The word submit. The word submit is a military word. Do y'all know that? The word submit is a military word. It was used for a soldier submitting to an officer. Use your mind to image, okay? When you join the military, anybody been in the military? Army veterans, veterans, anybody? I usually, nobody. Wow, okay. When you join the military, you just have to take my word for it. Okay, you'll just have to, Nate, never, you'll just have to you just take my word for it. Nate, if I go off tracks, you go, that's not right. Stop making stuff up, okay? When you join the military, you lose a tremendous amount of control over your own schedule. Like when you sleep, when you eat, when you work. Joining the military, you lose a tremendous amount of control over your own schedule. Why? In order to be concert with the unit... In order to be part of a whole unit, you have to defer a whole lot of your decisions, a whole lot of your wishes, a whole lot of your wants for the good of the whole. Why? In the military, it's a matter of life or death that one soldier doesn't just go, I'm going to do my own thing and just go rogue. And Paul says, that's what it means. Husband and wife, parent, children, to submit. To submit is to give up your rights. To submit is to take yourself out of the center. To submit is to defer your own wants, your wishes, your desires for the good of the relationship. To submit is to die to self-centeredness, which is the cancer in any relationship. Married couples, anybody in relationship, would you say that self-centeredness kills relationships? And Paul says that submitting to each other, taking yourself out of the center, deferring your own interests for the sake of the whole, that right there is the only way that relationships will work. The problem is the ability to give yourself like that the ability to take yourself out of the center, the ability to defer your own interests and wants and desires for another person is neither instinctive nor natural. There is nothing more unnatural than dying to self-centeredness in relationships. Anybody relate? 
does this come naturally to somebody? Does it come naturally to somebody to go, I'm going to die to my own wants and desires. I'm going to give up my rights for you. Does this come naturally? It is neither instinctive nor natural. So here's the dilemma. Paul says that the thing that we need for healthy relationships in any context is neither instinctive nor natural. And that's why he says you need the power of the Holy Spirit to do something in you that you can neither instinctively nor naturally do. If you figured out how to do this on your own in relationships, please come and teach me and our church a lesson because I haven't figured out how to do this in my marriage apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. I am so freaking self-centered and selfish. Do you know what thought went through my mind yesterday? I'm riffing now, and when I riff, it's danger zone. Do you know what went through my mind yesterday? Because I haven't even talked to my wife about this, and I'm doing this therapeutic thing in front of y'all. You know what my mind, my, the thing that went through my mind is this, and if anybody, my mind in my mind is, I think I'm carrying the bulk of the load in this relationship. <laughs> Just, I dare you to say that that has never crossed your mind. Okay, then. Okay, then. Don't judge me. You don't know me, Okay. <laughs> You guys, how does the Holy Spirit help us do this thing that is so unnatural? Look at verse 21. I'm going to take you to the text over and over again. It says, submit to one another out of what? Out of so what? Say, say it with me. Out of what? Out of reverence. Out of reverence or fear for Christ. In other words, Paul is saying your ability to do this very unnatural thing of deferring your interests to someone else, of giving up your rights, of dying to self-centeredness, of taking yourself out of the center That can only happen when you are awed by, when you are controlled by, when you are overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he has done for you. The only way that you and I possibly do this is when the Holy Spirit allows us and the gospel to come alive in our hearts that we see Jesus and what he has done for us. And I'm going to remind you again, the gospel doesn't just save you. It's what grows you. The gospel doesn't just get you into the kingdom. It's what enables you to grow in the kingdom. And for the rest of this sermon, all these points, I'm going to point to the gospel again and again and again and just flesh it out, which I'm looking forward to doing. So let's pack this, unpack this. How is it that the gospel and looking at what Jesus has done enable us to submit to one another? Self-centeredness manifests itself in two very different ways. Self-centeredness manifests itself in two very different ways. One is what I would call, I am all that, or I'm so wonderful, superiority complex. The other actually is opposite, which is, I am so awful, an inferiority complex. If a superiority complex, I'm all that, an inferior complex, I'm awful, is at work in any relationship, it'll destroy it. Let me break it down for you. If you are someone who struggles of the, I'm so wonderful variety, Here's what happens. You are incredibly judgmental and critical of people. Because the way that you get a sense of self is by looking down at people. Don't turn to your wife or your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm talking to you. The way that the superior complex works is you get a sense of self by looking down at others. And you're incredibly harsh, incredibly judgmental, and incredibly, incredibly hard on people when they fail you, when they let you down. The interesting thing, of course, is if you struggle with a superiority complex, you are very defensive about your own issues and struggles. Why? Because your whole sense of self is built on I'm all that. God forbid anybody come and challenge me on I'm all that. So I am going to defend myself because emotionally it is impossible to actually confront the fact that I might not be all that. So if you struggle with this complex, listen, please. Here's what happens. You make commitments, but you don't keep them. You can't last long in relationships where the person is difficult. (laughs) And you're quick to end things when they no longer suit you. You know anyone like that? (laughs) Sorry. Misty over there is like, oh, yes. How does the gospel address it? See, this is why I, I, I was looking forward to this sermon the whole week because I love nothing more than the gospel and then just unpacking it. What does the gospel do? I wanted the gospel to come and say, you are more wicked and more sinful than you dare believe. 
Do you know how God cheated you and me when we failed him, when we disappointed him? We're done? Is that how he's... When we failed and disappointed him, this is the amazing thing about the gospel. He actually loved us even more. So when the gospel is running in your veins, you know what you do? When people fail you, when people disappoint you, you don't go, we're done. What do you do? You stay with them. You're patient with them. God was patient with you. Because you know that's how they'll change. Because that's how you will change. I've got to move on. What about the inferiority complex? Interestingly enough, the inferiority complex, I am awful, actually is sometimes even more judgmental and critical than the superiority complex. Because in a really twisted way, and just take my word for it, this is as a pastor, not as a psychologist or counselor, the way that the inferior complex works is instead of looking down at others to get a sense of self, you tear others down to get a sense of self. Second, this really twisted thing, you go, I'm going to make you really, really small in my eyes so that I could feel better about me. And by the way, you'll be most critical and judgmental about the thing that you struggle with. If you're incredibly judgmental, sexually promiscuous people, you probably struggle a lot with lust. If you're incredibly self-righteous and judgmental about rich people, you might be idolatry of finances and security. Now, how does this person deal with his or her lack? Here's what they do. They latch onto a relationship so that that person could fulfill the lack that they have. But here's the problem. No human being could meet that need that's in your soul to make up that lack. Every relationship has a sign like those bridges, no more than two tons, if you put more weight on that bridge than it can carry, it'll collapse. How many relationships have you seen collapse because one person says, my lack has to be filled by you? Nobody could stand that pressure. Nobody. Some of y'all are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You were crushed under your parents because your parents did this to you. And you're doing the same thing to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife. What does the gospel do? This is the thing that I love. The gospel in both cases, the gospel comes and says, not just am I more sinful, more wicked than I dare believe. The gospel also comes on and says, I am more loved and more accepted than I dared hope. If the gospel is running in your veins, and this is the reason why I preach on this every week. If the gospel is running in your veins, you say, it's good that my spouse loves me, but I don't need her love to find meaning and significance in life. If I find my meaning and significance in him, her, them, I'm going to crush them under the pressure. But if the gospel is running in me, I don't love them for me. I love them for them. I don't love them for what I get out of it. I love them simply for who they are, not what they contribute. If you don't get this, I am telling you, you will crush the person you're in relationship with.
this, you eat something so good, and the face that you make is, mm-hmm. And you just sat there, I'm like, it's blood. Here's another wonderful thing. There's another whole level of joy that comes when you get someone else to praise it to. I have a really hard time being thankful. 
so that no matter what you do, you and I will never, ever, for the rest of our lives, ever have to pray like David did. Do not cast your spirit away because God says, I will never forgive you. Do you know 